The text for the sermon tonight comes from John chapter 15. You should find there on page 11 in your worship folder. Feel free to follow along if you'd like. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've come to our, this is the third installment on this little series that we've been working through for the month of December in the season of Advent, looking at a few of the I Am sayings in John's Gospel. We're doing that because Advent is a season where uh, we are celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that God became man and made his dwelling among us, which is exactly how the Gospel of John starts. And so, in order to celebrate it uh, as it was given to us in the uh, true, meaningful way, in the true way, then we need to know a little bit about who Jesus is and why he came, and knowing that, that we'll be able to celebrate this event that we call the Incarnation. As Will mentioned last time, last week, then the Gospels of Matthew and Luke actually start out with the birth narrative, and they tell us that Jesus came in one of the passages we just read a little while ago um, in our service. But John starts off by saying that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And then the Gospel marches on in a story expounding on who this Jesus is. And especially with these I Am statements, you, if... 
I am was the name of the Old Testament God. It was the name that he revealed of himself that he was to be known by I am. And so now we have this guy who's human, flesh, looks just like everybody else, who's walking around and he's saying things like, I am this. And we can even see by the reaction of the Pharisees that they get the picture. That this is, this is not a normal thing to do. That this is a person in human flesh who is actually making a claim to be God himself. And so what a picture of the incarnation of God come as man come to make his dwelling among us than that. So this evening we're looking at John chapter 15 about the true vine. And this is a wonderful passage. It's very deep. It's been very rich and reflecting on this week. And there's a lot in here that we might not touch every detail that might spark curiosity from um, reading this. But what we're particularly doing is we're looking at this passage in light as who does it say that Jesus is? It's he was the one given to us at Christmas time as a little baby. And who is who does this passage say that Jesus is. So that's the particular angle that we're going. So, it's been a big week for Alabama, the state, as you know. Sorry, I'm turning my stopwatch on, not my calculator. There we go. So it's been a big week for the state, and so you know, there was a big election early in the week, and I promise I'm only going to mention it this one time in the beginning for the sake of an illustration, and no further than that. But on Wednesday morning, I had an experience that maybe some of you also had an experience. Everything was done, all the craziness campaign was done, the votes were in, and I was driving into the Avon to work on Wednesday morning, and I was listening to NBR, to Andrew Yeager, who many of you know, and we're talking about the election. And particularly what they were doing is they were going to both camps, one candidate in Montgomery and the other in Birmingham, and they were interviewing people and their reaction afterwards. And so on the one side, there was the camp from the losing party from his camp in Montgomery, and people's response to that was, well, it's it was disappointing, but God is faithful, and he will do the right thing, and he is going to come through, um, and his agenda is going to win out at the end of the day, was the typical response. So then they switch, and the interviewer goes to the other side, to the winner's camp, and they were interviewing people in there as well, and it was almost the exact same thing. It was, thank you to Jesus, because he has intervened. He has done the right thing. He has per- proved himself to be faithful, and he is... Um, in a way, delivered us. He's done good to us. So I, I wonder if any of you, if if any of you had the same experience on Wednesday morning. But I think it brings up this question for us: Who are the real people of God? I mean, I think we all have this natural tendency to uh, say that God is on our side. You know, I was talking about this with Will this week, and he referred me to the Bob Dylan song "God on Our Side," which you might know. But I think that's great language. I think that when we really care about something and we really believe in it and we really think that we're right, it is natural for all of us that we think that God is on our side. He's behind us and whatever we're doing, that he is going to carry that torch and he is going to win out in the end. 
This is not just an issue for our day and time now, believe it or not. This was actually an issue at the time when Jesus is saying these words in John 15. If we were to read, if you have your Bibles, you can look at it. If we were to read on to chapter 16 and read the first four verses, we see this. Jesus says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. And indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So Jesus is actually speaking in a a situation of a very high difficulty where there is a very strong disagreement about who the people of God really are. So this is a situation that would be very relevant and hit very close to the disciples as well. I think as we look at it this evening, this is not just a question for believers. That it is a question for believers. If you're here in this room and you, you consider yourself a Christian and believed in Jesus, that might, when we encounter situations like this, then some of us, it might make us uncomfortable. It might make us a little bit self-conscious. And it might make us really wonder and trouble who, who are the people of God. But I think it's equally as relevant if, to the non-believer who's looking and who also sees the exact same inconsistencies and who has the exact same experience and the exact same question comes to mind. Um, what in the world? You know, these guys can't agree. Who are the people of God and who are they really supposed to be? I think we all notice this, and for many of us, it's frustrating. So, we're going to ask this question. Is this a very relevant question to this passage as Jesus reveals who he is? Who are the real people of God? And we're going to look at what Jesus says about that. And we're going to do this. We have three points. First, we're going to look at why the people of God are difficult to identify in the first place. The second point, then we're going to ask the text that who does Jesus say that the people of God really are? What are their true marks? And then thirdly, we're going to ask the question, how can anyone be a part of them? How can anyone consider themselves part of the people of God? So that's where we're going. Let's start with a problem identifying the people of God. You'll look in chapter 15, verse 1. Then Jesus, right out of the gate, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. When he says this, we, also, we already saw in chapter 16, like I mentioned before, that there are multiple claims on who the people of God really are. That there's the Jewish side who claim to be the people of God, and Jesus is claiming a similar claim here. In order to understand that, we have to understand what Jesus means when he says, I am the vine. Because the vine metaphor that we see here, the vine and the branches, is a metaphor that is weaved throughout the whole Old Testament that is very close to the Israelite and the Jewish identity who they consider themselves to be. So I'm going to give you just a little bit of a survey of this so that we can understand that what that what Jesus is saying when he says that he's the vine as we look into the Old Testament. In the very beginning, the the story starts in a garden where there is fullness and there is fruit and there is life and abundance. And there is a perfect loving relationship between God and people. And people are full. There is nothing dark and there is no death in that moment. However, 
and human beings being deceived by the snake had this thought that maybe I don't have everything that I need. Maybe I need to provide for myself in a certain in a way, and maybe that God has not given me enough. And so they rebelled against God, and in doing so actually broke off the source of love and the source of life that they were created for in the, in the beginning, to enjoy. But God didn't end the story there. Through calling a man named Abraham, he called another people who said that this group of people, the offspring of Abraham, is going to be a people that will be special to me. They will have a unique relationship that I will seek out, I will make them my own, and through this people, and this is really important, that through this people, they will bear fruit and that they will display before all of the nations the love and the mercy and the character of God, and particularly through his law. So God redeemed a people out of slavery who were in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, and he set them in a new land, and he set them right in the middle of all the other nations surrounding them so that they would display the mercy and the love and the character of God that he had shown towards them so that there would be a harvest. The others would come and they would see and they would know and they would be able to taste that same love and care. But then we come to this point where this metaphor of the vine comes into play. If we move our survey through that point into the Old Testament prophets, we start seeing this. Isaiah 5, then God compares the nation of Israel to a vineyard that God planted, but it didn't yield good fruit. It yielded wild grapes instead, and its fruit was bloodshed and outcry. So what, in just a general sense, a wild vine is just like a vine like every other vine. There's nothing distinct about this. There's no life force. It doesn't reflect you know, the nourishment that is coming from. It is just like all the other vines, yielding sour fruit. Same thing comes out in Ezekiel 15. Then here a vine. Then Ezekiel compares Israel to a vine that's just out in the woods. It's just a common, everyday vine yielding sour fruit. And I want to read Jeremiah chapter 22 for you, verses 20 to 25, just five verses. Listen to this. Jeremiah says, Long ago I broke your, broke your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I, I will not serve. Yet on every hill, every high hill, and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. How can you say I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness. In her heat sniffing the wind, who can restrain her lust? None of you seek her need, weary themselves. In her mouth they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. So what's happening here? The vine is an image for Israel that God planted that was to bear fruit, like we said, in displaying the character of God for the nations to see so they could come eat. But what happened was that this vine 
It didn't look like any other vines. They kept pursuing the same things that all the nations would pursue. They kept bowing down to the same gods, the same means of controlling life, the same means of finding fulfillment. And rather than a people that are loved, the imagery is kind of stark and kind of rich. They're more like a people that are full of lust. That rather than filled up with love, that their love is spread around, needing to consume, needing to provide for themselves, this constant need for fulfillment, rather than a constant supply of fruit and love. This is a heavy indictment on the state of Israel. And I think we see in here that just like Israel, there really was almost no difference. Now, all the exact same things that all the other nations struggled with were deeply at root in, the, in Israel as well. That just the law, keeping the law was not enough. They couldn't do it. Just like Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden, there was this constant craving in all of humanity that had to be fixed, of being separated from God, being unplugged from that love and that communion with Him. There's this constant need to find fulfillment and to find fruitfulness in oneself that is much more akin to lust than of someone being loved. I think just an illustration, we see in here that we have this metaphor of a fire, which is a metaphor for God's judgment, that branches that don't bear fruit are worthy of nothing more. They don't bear fruit. They're not good for anything except fuel to the fire. But I think this image is kind of powerful and even ironic, that based on this history of Israel and even of humanity, that unplugged from the love of God and that fullness, we become much more like a fire that just consumes, that is need, a need to... You know, to build ourselves up, to provide for ourselves, to find fulfillment. But it is a never-ending, consuming type of feeling. Because we all want plenty in life, and none of us want to go wanting. We're all in a constant quest for love and fullness in life. We all want to live the fullest lives possible. You know, if you think about it, I think that if you ever lose your temper at home, you know, if you come home tired at the end of the day and the kids are all over you and, you know, something happens, somebody's screaming, you're, you, you know, this is a direct assault on your fullness in life. At least that's what it feels like, you know, at the time. That there's no happiness here. That, you know, my, my own rights to come home and to be happy that it's not happening. And so, like, this is, if you've ever been in this situation, you lose your temper and get frustrated, it's, I think, at its deepest place, it comes from that craving of wanting fullness in life for ourselves. Because we don't want to be hampered. We don't want to be restricted. We want to be full. I think the same goes for, you know, when we're depressed and when we're down and we have a hard time seeing hope. Is because there, there seems to be no fullness. You know, we, this, we, our circumstances, what we see around us, the way we see life going, is not the direction of being filled up, but the direction of, of going in want. Even if you think about issues of injustice, like economic injustice tends to happen because everybody is afraid of going without and being in want, and everybody wants to be full. 
And so that quest of constantly filling up, of pursuing to get the most, the most meaning out of life, the most ability, even the most love, becomes a consuming fire that is good for nothing except in it being burned. That is the case for all of us. As illustrated in Israel, and it is the case when we think about it, I think is, it hits very close to home with life for us as well. So what's the point? Why is it hard to identify the people of God? Because the people of God left on their own all suffer from the same thing. We all look the same way. Of craving fullness, of craving love, wanting more out of life for ourselves. And that comes out in everything that we do. The same inconsistencies, same fears, same as everybody else. Kind of like wild vines often look just the same. So if that's the case, who are the people of God really? I think is the question that leads us to. If you'll look, let's go back to John 15 to answer this question again in verse 1. When Jesus is claiming he's talking about the true vine, look at the first two words. He doesn't just say he's a true vine as in, as in he's a source of light. He says, I am, personally, a person. I am the true vine. And if we catch that imagery from the Old Testament, the whole people of God being the vine that was to bear fruit and to display the love and character of God to the nations surrounding, here we get Jesus. Now, they would have caught this metaphor. They know what, what he's talking about. But it's not a people group. It's one person. Jesus says, I am the vine. I am the one. I am the people of Israel. One person. How can that be? Again, if we look through the Old Testament, we see that there is this reflection of hope. That alongside of the darkness, alongside the, the indictment, alongside the failure, that Israel failed to display the true character of God, we also see these messages of hope. Think about if you guys are doing Advent now, you might remember um, Isaiah 11 and the story about the stump of Jesse that was cut off. The people of Israel that were that failed in a way and they were cut off and sent into exile. But yet, Isaiah gives this prophecy that there's a shoot that will come out of the stump of Jesse. The father of David, ultimately down the line, who would end up being the father of Jesus. That there was a message of hope that was, that, was, that was incubating, and it was even back in this time. We see the same thing in Jeremiah 33, that there was one stump, one shoot that was going to come. is one man who would bring righteousness and justice and peace. And it's a little bit of a different metaphor, but in Isaiah 42 and 49 and 50 and 53... Not the metaphor of a vine, but we see the same concept, that there was a hope and that one person would come and do what Israel couldn't do. And this is a metaphor of God's servant, and that God would have a servant. It starts as people of Israel, again, that they were to serve, and they were to serve God, and they were to work to bring, bear fruit that the nations around may see. But as we proceed in those chapters, it becomes clear that this is not a people group, this is a one person. That Jesus Christ, here's, when he says, I am the true vine, he's saying that he is, in himself, the fulfillment and the hope of everything that Israel was supposed to be. 
He is the one that displays God's character. He is the one that obeys. He is the one that brings a reward. He is the one that bears fruit. It is in Jesus himself. It is because of Jesus in Isaiah 27, 6, that you can say, the writer can say, In the days to come, Jacob will take root, and Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. It is because Jesus would come, and he would bear fruit abundantly. And in Amos 9, at the end of there, you might be familiar with this passage. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declare the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow from it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild and re- the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Jesus is claiming to be everything that Israel is supposed to be. He is the hope. He came, and he is claiming to be the one who obeyed God to the fullest. He did everything Israel was supposed to do, and he bore fruit. He was successful. He actually displayed the goodness of God and he reaped the rewards that in absolute abundance, more than anyone could ever imagine. If we look back at our passage in verses 9 and 10 of John 15, then we see the same concept coming out. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. And abide in his love. Jesus is claiming that everything starts with the Father's relationship with him. That he was loved first by the Father. That he kept the Father's commandments. He is the ultimate hope and fulfillment of everything Israel is supposed to be. What does this do for us? I think in one way, for the confused Christian in here, when we look out at the situations that we face every day, whether it be political or cultural or just life, and we wonder, who are the people of God really? I don't see them. I don't recognize them anywhere. The people of God is revealed to us as one man here in the Scriptures as Jesus Christ. He never failed, has never been inconsistent. He has done everything that he was supposed to do. In a lot of ways, this is also a confrontation to many of us in the room in that there is only one person who ever did this. There is only one person who has ever truly borne fruit, as he was asked to do, and it is not us. It's not our own efforts. It is not in our own abilities. It was only Jesus. I think this also gives us a little bit of a clarity for the non-Christian who might be in the room who is looking in and is wondering that these people are so inconsistent. I don't see any difference between them and anybody else. But the testimony of Scripture is that the hope is in Jesus Christ. The one who was in the fullness loved by God came and obeyed, never inconsistent, endured to the end, fulfilling the will of the Father. It's Jesus Christ. Christ is the one that we look to. The whole Christian religion, what Jesus is saying is making the claim, is it is not about a higher power and a set of rules, a set of morality that have to be carried around and maintained and promoted to make sure that everybody abides by them. It is not a religion of a people that are superior to others because they have the code, they have the system of morals that make them better than other people. The fundamental difference between that, which in a way is a cultural form of religion, is that Christianity is focused on a person. 
It is focused on the love and obedience of the person of Jesus Christ, not on the love and obedience of human beings. That is very core. But if that's the case, I think this obviously brings us another very important question. And that we looked at why the people of God are hard to identify, and that is because they oftentimes look the same, just the same as everybody else. And we looked at who the people of God really are, and that it's not a collective, it is one person at its very core. Then how in the world can anyone consider themselves part of the people of God? If it's Jesus, if he's the one who did it, if it's not people who did it, how can anybody be counted as part of the people of God? So let's look at that. You might think in reading this passage, if, if this is what stood out to you, in some of the language here it can sound like in order to be part of the people of God, what you have to do is you have to bear fruit. There has to be... We have a lot of stuff about keeping commandments. We have this phrase, you know, in here where, you know, Jesus says that anyone in me who does not bear fruit gets pruned away and is not good. That if you keep the commandments, then you'll abide in Jesus' love. So it can sound like on the surface that in order to be part of the people of God, in a sense, that you have to obey. And you have to obey pretty well. But let's look out a little bit further. And you can see this in verses 3 and verses 7, but I want to draw your attention particularly down here to verse 10. In this, in verse 10, it says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. So we see here, with Jesus coming on the scene, there's a shift. There's a shift that happens. And that the will of God for His people, what He desired His people to do and to be and to reflect and to show, that this has been fully fulfilled and done by Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth and He did what no human being could do, and He fully obeyed His Father and kept His commandments. From that point, He, being the mediator between God and man, comes down and He turns to us and He says, Obey everything that I have commanded you to do. And what is that? And what is this like in verse 3 where he says, he talks about the word that that has been spoken. In verse 7 he says, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. These are different words, but Jesus is talking about the total teaching that he came and he spoke and he instructed and he did. Jesus is talking about himself. So you keep my commandments, then you follow what I have said, who I have said that I am and what I have asked you to do. And in a a really neat way, last week we heard, and Will talked about this with the bread of life, that what Jesus says is, my will for you is that you believe in me. That Jesus is enough. That Jesus is everything that the Father ever hoped anyone would be. He is the object of his delight, and he is the object of his perfect love. To believe that is who Jesus is is what is being asked. But from that point, what does that mean? He says, I'll draw your attention to this word in verse 4. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. You might wonder what it means to abide. Abide is what Jesus is talking about, is the constant 
walk of faith, of continuously trusting in Christ for life alone. Is the continual activity not of a one-time, not of a one-time trust in Jesus and then off to keeping the commands. It is the daily coming back to Jesus that what Jesus did is enough. That where Jesus is, there is life. That where Jesus has done is he has obeyed. That where Jesus is, that's where the Father's delight is. That through faith, of the testimony that is given about Jesus as he has revealed who he has said he, that he is and asked us to believe in him. That in doing that, again and again and again, staying in that place, living in that place, every moment of every day, that that is where is life. That in that, in doing so, in trusting in Jesus alone for life is like branches being plugged into a vine. They don't bear fruit on their own. If you notice, the command in here is never to bear fruit. It says the Father desires that we bear fruit. But the command in this passage is to abide in Jesus. To continuously, every day, look to Him for life. And in Him is life abundant. In Christ, there is joy as we saw. that His joy is counted as our joy. His obedience is counted as our obedience. Chapter 14, then he talked about peace, that his peace is our peace. These are all things that Christ did and is given to the one who puts their faith in him. But it's more than that. It's that from that point that his life force, the love that he has between the Father and the Spirit, that love and that life is actually given to the believer to work inside, to renew to give life, to sustain, to prop up, to heal, to bring life in abundance. Jesus, in claiming that he is the true vine, he is saying that he is life. In him is life, and only in him can life be born. Only in him is there fruit. But he promises fruit. You know, many of us, we... There are many of us in this room who might be approaching this passage in different, different ways. Some of us might not might feel like we have put our faith in Christ, but we just don't really feel worthy even to be counted as part of the people of God. We might be tired. Our circumstances might be all out of whack. We might feel guilt. It might be because things we've done. There might be some things outside of us that we feel like we just don't feel life, we don't see it. It feels God feels very far away. This might be some of us. The promise here is that it is not our life, it is not what we feel. That the life of Christ, for those who belong to him by faith, is more real than we could ever imagine. It is him that is inside. It is his work. It is his delight and his love to carry and to prop up those who belong to him. He wants nothing more than to see fruit and to see fullness and to see abundance in his people. For some of us, we might feel like we we might feel like we can bear fruit. We might feel like we know the the decisions that need to be made. We know where culture needs to go. We know what everybody else needs to do. And we feel very disoriented because we feel like we're the only ones. 
But here again, it's the same message. It shows us that there, there is more life that belongs to Jesus than any that we could ever hope or imagine to have. There's a confrontation to us in a way because it took Jesus to come and it took him to give, to give life. There was, there was no human being that was able to do it. But with him, he offers so much more than we can hope. He offers more for culture. He offers more for politics. He offers more for the dinner conversations around your table. And that he, this is a call to believe in him. And that relinquishing ourselves and placing trust in him is life abundant. Through him, there will be fruit. And lastly, for some of us might be on the outside looking in. We might not have put our faith in Jesus, and we might have the sense of curiosity and wonder um, about who the people of God really are and what this really means. And I hope that what this passage is, is this creates a sense of curiosity. What is this life? What is the life that Jesus promises that he brings? What does it mean to be in Christ and for the love of Christ to be in me and to see fullness and to feel the emptiness and that, love, that desire for love, all of that to be filled by Christ. I hope that's the case. For all of us, this is a passage that is a call day by day. Maybe the 10,000th time, maybe the first time out of 10,000 times. We feel like we have no life. And we realize through the testimony of Jesus that we have no life but that we would see him and that we would put our faith in him and we would depend on him for life alone. And he has promised that he will give it. Let's pray. Dear Father, we, once again, we come before your truth and it sounds good in many ways. It sounds strange in many ways. And... I think at the end of the day, it is something that we need you to continuously work in our hearts to that we would be able to believe. I pray that you would convict us of our own ways where we try to go about our lives, believing that you are behind us and that you are behind our cause and that you will render all of our own desires to us in our own way, but I pray instead that you would help us to see the life that is in Jesus. I pray that you would, all of us, that you would help us to see the gift that he brings, the delight that he is to his Father, and the fullness of life that is in him. I pray that you would help us want it and desire it every day, and that we would look to Jesus for that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.